Hey, Rockheads, it's time for NDC Oslo again, June 15th through 19th in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will be there, of course, as well as all your favorite speakers. World-class stuff here, folks. NDC-Oslo.com. We'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1140, with guest Jay Schmelzer. Recorded Friday, May 8th, 2015. Hey, what do you say? It's Hi. May. This is Carl Richards here. Hey, Richard, how are you? Hi. Hi. It's like, it's like the show snuck up on you and surprised you. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, are hey. we on the air? Oh, we're on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're you know, we ju- did have to hit the button to make that happen, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You're almost uh, ready to leave Chicago, I hear. Yep, the end of Ignite. Time to go home for, you know, a day and a half and then uh, off to the next thing. The next thing. Dev Intersection? I got a consulting gig next week, and then uh, the week after that is Dev Intersection, which is when this show's coming out. So, yep. you know. Should be a lot of fun. I hope we're having a good time there. If you uh, happen I, to be in the Scottsdale, Arizona area, and you're not at Dev Intersection, what are you doing? You're missing out. You're missing out. Anyway, I got something fun for you, so let's roll the music for Better Note, a framework. All right, buddy. What do you got? Yeah, you know, I know. I, I realized it's not something fun. It is something awesome. It is really awesome. Um, first of all, you know what a fan I am of Code Lens, right? I do indeed. And without stealing Jay's thunder here, because he'll probably want to talk about it too. But um, just a little backstory: Code Lens is a feature of Visual Studio that gives you what I call method vision, like a summary of info about a method displayed on the line above the definition that expands to show more details, like. Uh, references with hyperlinks, unit test info, who changed it last, any associated work items and code review details and all sorts of stuff. But the, the news is that in Visual Studio 2015 RC, the release candidate, you also get file level indicators for all types of files that can be opened in the Visual Studio editor, all types of files that can be opened in Visual Studio and version also in a Git repository. So they're making it more powerful. They're also bringing it to the masses, which means that uh, it's there in Visual Studio Professional as well as Enterprise. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Very excited about that. I, Code Lens should be for everybody. I love it. Yep. It really should be, and it looks like it's going that way. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. All good news. All good news indeed. So uh, that's it. Tinyurl.com slash code lens for all to see the uh, announcement. So who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off a show 790. 790, a show we did in August of 2012 with one Jay Smelzer and Chris Finland. Mm-hmm. We were talking about Light Switch when it had, it had gone over to the world of HTML5. Right. That's a while ago. And so three years ago, Steve Mead wrote this great comment where he said, one of the reasons that Access was so successful is that it was packaged with Office and business users took the initiative to create applications. I think Microsoft is targeting the wrong user by bundling light switch with Visual Studio and not with Office. Developers have Visual Studio, but when they hear about light switch, they assume it's a toy, so they don't use it. Business users have Office Suite, not Visual Studio, so most will never even know that Light Switch exists. 
If business users got light switch with Office, they would try building apps much like they did with Access. Now that deployment to the cloud is so easy, the web-to-server dependency wouldn't even slow them down. I don't know that I agree with this sentiment in the first place because I think light switch was not like Access, and Access is still Access and in Office. But it does sort of bring this idea of did light switch land where it needed to land. I've never really compared it to Access so much as I compared it to the old VB. I agree with the caller, actually. I, I think that it, it isn't for developers. I think it's for professionals who do scripting and who are interested in doing development and that want to uh, make their own custom solutions. And that target audience tends to be the office audience. Yep, but that's not what happened, is it? Anyway, it's funny that we have a guy on the line who could probably answer it to answer that question, too. So, But let's just say to Steve, thank you so much for your comment three years ago. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps, because we've got them for Android, Windows Phone 708, iOS, and Windows 8. And that brings us to Jay Schmelzer. Jay is the Director of Program Management on the Visual Studio team at Microsoft. Uh, Jay and his team are responsible for the Visual Studio tools, programming languages, frameworks, and runtime components used to build line of business and cloud applications. That includes the CLR and .NET Framework, Microsoft's Managed Languages, VBNet, C-Sharp, and F-Sharp, Visual Studio support for building Microsoft Office 365 and Windows Azure solutions, and Visual Studio Lite Switch. Welcome back, Jay. Thanks for having me. Always great to spend some time with you guys. Definitely. And uh, what, what do you think? What happened to Lite Switch anyway? What's the, what's the latest with Lite Switch? No, it's – yeah, it's – so I – Spent the last couple of weeks at, at Bill and Ignite, so it's a question that I definitely got quite a few times as I was either walking around the, the conference floor or standing at the booth and people kind of saw my name badge like, wait a minute, you're the light switch guy. Uh, so, you know, I think in all honesty, the, the fact that, you know, the conversation you and Carly, you and Richard were just having is, is really all, a lot of what the challenge with light switch has been. It kind of found itself ending up kind of in the middle um, between something a professional developer would want to use and something a business kind of user, business analyst kind of person would want to use. When we created LightSwitch, we really were, you know, we saw a, a need and an opportunity to create an experience for developers building business applications that was much more productive uh, than what they were, what they had available today, hmm. um, allowing them to quickly build these applications uh, focusing in, in on the part of the application that was really the unique custom aspect for the business and get a lot of the rest of the work just sort of out of the way for them and take care of it. When we started, you know, we're targeting a, an application pattern that was pretty well understood, the, that kind of classic, you know, end tier solution structure. Technologies there were relatively stable. We could create an experience that was very, very, had a very strong point of view on on what technology you should use and what that application pattern should look like. Right. Then we had a few things in the technology world happen. We decided that we needed to change our focus uh, and and apply that kind of experience to people building mobile app- mobile business applications with HTML and JavaScript and found that the application pattern there isn't quite as well understood or well agreed upon. The technologies involved certainly aren't standing still. Mm-hmm. Uh, the framework of the day, right? Whatever is popular JavaScript framework today is probably not going to be popular in two weeks. And applying that same tooling approach, 
was just absolutely the wrong thing to do for a professional developer because we we locked you into technologies and you couldn't change them as you wanted to go move forward to something new. You look at the requests we got for what people wanted to add to the HTML version of Light Switch, and it was common things that should just be available and should just work. Mm-hmm. Give me a list box control. Give me this. You know, the fact that you had to do things differently was was bad. So what we've done is the team took a step back, uh, is looking at how we can can create a productive experience, building on some of the techniques that have evolved inside of the Visual Studio space and looking at things like scaffolding approaches where we just help you write the code you wanted to write, but it's your code. You can you can do with it as you wish. You can rip and replace frameworks and libraries that, that the generator used as new things evolve, um, putting all that control in, you, in your hands as a developer um, versus the abstraction layers we had done in prior versions of LightSwitch. So, so are you saying a that a part- lot of the high-level things of LightSwitch are actually coming to the professional developer? That's exactly the intent, is how do we bring a lot of the higher-level things that we did in LightSwitch, like quickly consuming, you know, connecting up to an existing data source or service, right, using that in a, you know, in a new app, how do we bring those to a broader set of the Visual Studio experiences across, you know, WPF applications, store applications, mm. ASP.NET applications, mm-hmm. and so forth? Um, that's what the team's off um, focusing on right now. I think you'll start seeing, well, probably between around the time that this show posts, you'll see a, a set of, a next blog post from the team talking more about what we're thinking about doing and starting to engage in the, with the, with the community to, to start making that happen. Okay. And, uh, wow, that's, that's really cool. So what about the, you know, the intended market, which is the, the business analysts? What are, what are we doing for those guys? I, so for those guys, you know, I think what we've learned is that, um, hey, Office is the tool that the business analyst guys have. And that's where, you know, any tools that for creating applications should, should come, you know, as part of that, of that offering, as part of that product. Um, as well as looking at, things happening in in the cloud as well. And so, you know, in the last couple of weeks, the Azure team announced the Azure App Services, right? A, a set of of experiences in Azure to make it to provide productive, you know, tooling and productive support for for consuming data and building, you know, kind of these orchestrated applications, you know, through logic apps and things like that. So I think we'll see a combination of those two things starting to come closer together. Uh to provide a, a an experience for more of that business analyst market. All right. So for the business analyst guys, they're really you're really looking to push them into or not push them, but you know, steer them toward office solutions. But light switch isn't going to be part of that. Is is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. All right. I, then I guess then there's a lot of overlap. Naturally there is, you know, with automating office applications and then building your own light switch apps. So I, I can see why I can see why you guys are doing that. Yeah. Cool. So what's new? I mean, I, you heard what I was talking about with the code lens thing. I love code lens and it's uh, in, in the professional edition now. Thank you very much. And I thank you and everybody else listening. Thanks you. That was a great decision. Yeah, no, it's a great tool. It's, a, it's pretty powerful and definitely something we wanted to make sure, you know, had to, was accessible to the broadest set of Visual Studio customers. So, so what else is new in Visual Studio that you want to talk about? Well, I would say the biggest kind of the thing that I've been spending a lot of my time on over the last probably eight months or so is really more in the 
more down in the .NET layer, um, kind of in the runtime, the framework, and the the work we're doing to both around open sourcing um, the the new .NET Core as well as taking it uh, cross platform to Linux and uh, the Mac operating system. That's that's where a lot of my attention has been the last eight eight months or so. Um, pretty cool things happening there, I think. Uh, You've been raising some eyebrows in Silicon Valley with that announcement. What what's the response been? Uh, unbelievably positive. Um, across the board, everything from you know seeing seeing us trend uh, in places in places like Reddit and Hacker News uh, yeah. when we do when we add a project to the open source area or when we we have a significant milestone in the the, the cross platform work uh, mm-hmm. places that traditionally aren't very Microsoft friendly and seeing really positive conversations happening there is, is exciting. Uh, just last week, we, we made available the first kind of binary preview of, you know, .NET core for Linux and Mac. Um, you know, it's a preview, so it's early. It's, it doesn't have the complete surface area yet, uh, but there is a, a good steel thread through it that allows you to, to write an ASP.NET five application that can talk to its SQL database uh, and deploy it on Linux, which is pretty pretty amazing. Where does uh, Mono fit into this equation, then, Jay? So the way I think about it, there's a couple things that have been happening with with Mono. First, the the Mono community has been very engaged uh, with us on the .NET Core project. Some of the most uh, some of the some of the first pull requests coming from from the community for that project came from folks that have been longtime contributors to Mono, which is which is great, and a lot of what we were hoping to to see happen when we when we did the open sourcing effort. The other aspect is that you know as part of our announcement back in November, we also changed the license of of a bunch of the reference source um, for the the existing kind of what we think of as the full framework or the you know the four five two version of the .NET framework, which freed up the Mono co- community to to take chunks of of the .NET framework source code and apply them directly into Mono, so improve the quality of of the Mono implementation by directly taking advantage of the code that we had for the Windows implementation. So I kind of think of Mono as the cross-platform, the analogous cross-platform version of the full framework. Uh, so we have, you know, framework 4.6, which is the Windows full framework. Mono would be the cross-platform version of that. And then .NET Core is the new you know, cloud-optimized, cloud-designed framework for, for Windows, Linux, and Mac. that makes sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. And that's cool. You know, it, it occurs to me, somebody was talking the other day about this. Is this not the first time that Microsoft was open-sourcing parts of the .NET framework either? Because there were, way back when there was Rotor. <laughs> yep. That's yeah, right. Rotor, Rotor a long time ago. The 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 honest the problem with Rotor, the challenge that Rotor had was it wasn't the same code base as the rest right. of the .NET framework. In this case, it is the same code base, right? The the .NET Core code base on Windows is the same code base that is that is the open source code base. There is no different copy of it sitting around. Um, so I think you know really learning from that Rotor experience and saying okay. We're not going to get put a separate version out as the open source one. It is the same one that we're running on Windows. It has platform abstraction layers in it that are all part of the open source project to to do the work to get it running on 
you know, Linux or Mac where things are different. But right. again, that happens at the runtime layer. So yeah, and I think and and it's you. It's the same team still contributing to it. They just contribute to it it's, as an open source project now. Exactly. That's the, you know, it's the same team. Um, they now work, you know, in an open source project as opposed to working into in a you know closed source project behind kind of behind the Microsoft firewall. That's actually one of the bigger things that that we've you know really seen happen as part of this is really moving the team into that open source world. Um, right. Getting the team to be more open, transparent with not only how they work, but how they design as well. So you start, you start seeing things like the C sharp language design team is designing the next version of C sharp in the open. They're, they're posting, you know, the, the minutes from every, uh, language design meeting, having conversations with the community about the, the goals for the next version of language, as well as specific implementations of language features. The ultimate, the ultimate destination there is to actually have live design meetings, hosted um, webcast design meetings with with the community. But we first, need to just kind of get the team oriented to the fact that you're not just working with the same small set of people you used to work with. So the social interactions right. need to be a little different. And this provides the ability for the the users of it to have direct feedback to the team as they're talking through these issues. Exactly. Exactly. You know, in the framework team, we. We do, you know, uh, webcast and record the, the API design review meetings that we have. Um, so people can, um, participate, you know, understand and hear, you know, how, how things like just adding a new overload to a, to a method are discussed and debated within the team. Um, right. Understand the trade offs of doing that, how we think about those things from a compatibility standpoint, um, and so forth. So, and then of course you, you know, if you're, you can engage at the level of the code as well and see all the pull requests that come from, you know, the engineers on, on my team, as well as, you know, engineers in the community, you see the code review and, you know, feedback for those pull requests, um, and see exactly how all of that, that happens. So getting, getting back to the response for Visual Studio Code, when you talk to Linux developers, you know, what do they immediately think of, you know, in terms of projects that they're going to develop with this? I'm, I take it probably mostly web stuff, right? Yeah. The target, the target for .NET Core right now is, is really on the server. So it's, it's web scenarios, um, server side utilities. So, you know, right. console based kinds of, of things. You know, the, the, the big thing that, that I spend a lot of time talking to folks about is the fact that, you know, the first thing you want to understand is that, .NET Core really is coming at it from that cloud design point, right? Thinking right. about the new patterns in the cloud, microservices, um, those kinds of things was really the, the, the driving design point for us. So, and to be cross-platform. So you, you have to think about .NET Core a little differently than you thought about the, you know, the .NET 4.6 or 4.x family of the framework where right. it was only running on Windows. So. Things that you thought of as framework capabilities like transactions or, or queuing were really in the full framework. Those were services of the operating system and that operating system was always Windows. So we could just surface them through .NET and it was, it was always available in this new world of, of microservices and cross platform. Those services are now services of the environment you're deploying into. So whether that's something like Microsoft Azure and your queue is now maybe coming from, you know, a service bus service or something like that, or in a Linux environment, you know, a completely different 
um, service that that is is providing those capabilities for you. And so we, you know, we have to think about how we we allow those and have those surface up through the framework. We're not really trying to tackle a lot of those things right now. Um, we're just doing the core web stack first, uh, and then we'll kind of continue expanding out beyond that after yeah, the first part. Yeah, it seems like the web stack is really the low-hanging fruit, but but this by going core and going cross-plat, it really enables a whole series of scenarios that we probably haven't even thought about yet. I mean, the, op, the OS is really sort of blurring, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's a whole new world of scenarios that um, we think open up, a whole new set of customers that we're now able to have conversations with that we just didn't have anything interesting to talk to them about or that they were interested in talking to us about before because they were, you know, they had big investments in Linux as their kind of operating environment. And we didn't really have anything to, that could play in that, in that space. So. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by the bug-crushing superpower that is Raygun. If you're wanting to detect and diagnose errors and crashes in your software, even find problems that you didn't know existed to improve your software, then Raygun may be perfect for you. Add a few lines of code to your application, and in minutes, you'll get real-time error reports with all the information you need to fix bugs fast. You can even hook it up to your team chat, bug tracking, and development workflow tools. Raygun covers all major web and mobile programming languages and platforms, including .NET, the full Xamarin stack, JavaScript, and many more. Go check out Raygun today at raygun.io and say hello for us. Well, I mean, it used to be that you had to start the conversation with, well, when you switch to Windows, then... Right. Mm -hmm. and you just yep. you don't have that conversation anymore. Right, exactly. Do you find that... Um, there, I mean, there's so much stuff in Azure, right? And the, being in the community, we see all the announcements and all the things that come out and, you know, the the way that we can interact with it, the tools and all of that stuff. It's just so rich. Do you find that people who aren't done, you know, it's not on their radar, they, they're surprised when they see it for the first time? I mean, I can't imagine, you know, you as a Microsoft guy going into a Linux shop and saying, hey, have you seen this? You know, what if you could do it like this? And, and just seeing people's heads exploding yeah there it's certainly um you know that really goes to that point of we're able to start having conversations with people that we we just weren't able to before because we weren't didn't have anything that that mapped to their world so um you know going in and and talking to a to well obviously first we talked to a lot of mixed shops right where they have windows and linux mm. um and you know the opportunity for them to now not segment as their developers as much as they used to, where like, oh, well, the .NET guys only do things that are going to run on Windows, and the Java guys only do things that are going to run on Linux. And actually now allowing them to think about their developers in a slightly different way, where they, they can be experts in a business area, and it doesn't matter whether they're going to deploy that application to Windows or Linux. Um, they can use their .NET skill set, right, and, and build the application that the business needs and deploy it to the right environment. Um, whichever they choose. Are, are you finding like a, a little culture shock in the Linux crowd? Like that somebody from Microsoft is actually talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> there's certainly, there's certainly some culture shocks going on. I'd, I'd say actually one of the bigger ones, you know, in addition to, to kind of running the, the .NET team, because we did, you know, as part of the open source team, we created the .NET foundation, which I'm also 
um, one of the, the board of directors of. And, and through that, I had the opportunity last month to actually do a keynote at the Apache con. Um, nice. so you talk about a culture shock, you know, I, I actually even made a bit of a joke about it during the beginning of the keynote that I can't say that when I, you know, joined Microsoft 12 plus years ago that I would have ever expected I was, you know, standing underneath the, you know, the Apache kind of feather, right. <laughs> giving a keynote. Um, so it's, <laughs> definitely yeah, a you were role. on the original .NET core team. If I remember correctly, that's a long way away. Yeah, I wasn't on the I wasn't on the original core team. I, I joined the company shortly after that. I mean, I was in, I was involved as a kind of a, a an external partner and early kind of early insider. But um, I joined the team more around the kind of the .NET 1.1, .NET 2.0 days. But still long enough ago that um, yeah, I can say it's a very different world that that we live in now and a very different environment than uh, I was I first joined. At Build, I was talking to uh, Microsoft. Uh, some I won't say who who it was, but she was on uh, you know in the evangelism world of Microsoft, and decided to reach out to a Linux user group, and just cold called this guy who ran the group, and she said she had to spend like fifteen minutes just proving she wasn't evil. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, you know, the guy's like, uh, who are you? Where, where are you working? What? Uh, you yeah, want to do things, what? That's one of the things we've found too, is that, you know, I, I've had to, we've had to, as a team really think about how do we, how do we start engaging with this new, with this audience that we've never engaged with before? Um, you know, and really the idea of starting out just, just getting people to understand that, look, we're just want, we're just trying to learn, right? We're trying to learn what this, you know, what the Linux ecosystem is like, what the Linux community is like. We're not necessarily coming in, try, you know, we don't want to come in and right away start saying, hey, here's what we've got for you, because we need to really understand that that community and that ecosystem first, so that we ensure we're we're building something that makes sense for them. Yeah, um, it's the same the same approach really we took with kind of open sourcing and the .NET Foundation as well was. We knew we it was a thing we needed to do, but we wanted to take a thoughtful approach to it so that we weren't so we were doing it in the right way and we were learning, you know, from the community and from the open source experts out there the right way to go do this, the right way to focus, the right things to to put our energy on, um, as opposed to just kind of sitting off in a corner and thinking about what it is we should do and having it some ta da moment that, you know, was inevitably going to be the wrong way to do it. So and when you pull back, like it's very tough to separate Windows from .NET. Like it was just just as tough to separate, say, object orientation from .NET. This is something that's sort of been permeated into the system. I got to think your deployment models are totally different. A lot of like underlying kernel type APIs are going to be very different. Like actually making this work is not trivial. Yeah, no there there are a lot of as there are a lot of things that we have to kind of really work on you know the first that, that you mentioned is historically people people think .net and they think windows right right a lot of people even you know most most folks also think visual studio and they think windows and they think .net right and so really kind of just getting that first set of you know preconceived notions and challenging those for people to to think more broadly about it i think actually the visual studio code re, you know announcement and release at build 
really helped there a lot. Um, yeah, just having a different tool to build .NET in that, again, yeah, is uncoupled from Windows. Right, a tool that's not coupled to Windows, a tool that's not exclusively coupled to .NET, right? Right. Um, you know, and I think we we went back and forth internally a lot about is is Visual Studio as part of that name going to help or hurt that tool being successful? So far, early data early data for us looks like it it has not had a negative impact on the look of it, and probably actually had a bit of a positive uplift of uh, expectations of what that that product is about, right? Um, so that's that's one set of challenges, right? That really have nothing to do with technology. And then you have the technical challenge of the fact that, yeah, you know, .NET was envisioned as the Windows thing. And so there are a lot of, I always call them with air quotes, Windows-isms, right? That <laughs> through that Windows-isms, framework. I love it. Are um, you a Windowsist? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And so, yeah. And so that's, you know, people often ask me, well, you know, is it going to, is the core and cross-platform aspect of .NET going to go beyond the server? and um, you know, obviously we have a lot of work just to get the server scenarios done. Um, and that will take us more than, more than even the first release, right? That'll take us a few releases to do. When you start looking at the, the client or device side of that and the stuff that's in the framework today, that's where you really see a lot of those Windowsisms start showing up, right? You know, yeah. technology like Windows Forms and WPF are under, underneath have very strong ties to Windows. So, right. um, you know, that, yeah. that's a whole nother effort to, that is probably a little bit further down the road for us to, to start think before we start thinking yeah. about it. Well, the client side of .NET is a very challenging discussion when you go to go cross platform. Yep. Yeah. It has a lot of moving parts now. Well, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. Time to go back into the .NET Rocks archives and, Delete all those old Linux vulnerability of the week segments. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to make nice. Uh, did, did we ever actually do that? I don't think we did that. Oh, yeah, we did. I think it might have even been before you, um, before Show 100. But, you know, back in the early days of .NET, Microsoft was, you know, XP had come out. And, you know, they had this big security problem, right, with IE5 or IE6. I can't even remember now. It's been a long time. But, uh, and they have to put off Vista and stuff. So people were complaining, you know, Windows buggy and viruses and whatnot. And so just to, and, and mostly the Linux people, you know, who were saying use Linux because it doesn't crash. So I would go up on the, uh, you know, what was the essentially the repository of Linux where they would post vulnerabilities. And every week there would be lots of them. And they were usually, you know, vulnerabilities where somebody could elevate permissions. And so I, I did a segment called the Linux Vulnerability of the Week. <laughs> Just to point out, you know, there are other platforms that have bugs too. Well, what we're and what we're what everybody's discovering is as as your product becomes popular, it gets hacked. So anyway, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. That was fun. At the time, it's actually. Time to give away a music to code by audio and Blu-ray documentary set to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you a little about music to code by. This is uh, my own music project, but it's not really music. It's a productivity tool. 
It's uh, tracks that are 25 minutes long to coincide with the Pomodoro technique that are specifically designed to get you into the zone and keep you there in a state of flow. And uh, don't take my word for it. Just look at look online, look at Twitter. Everybody's talking about it. It's hashtag MTCB. And the website is mtcb.pwop.com, P-W-O-P. It's, uh, it's a thing. So uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to give away a Music to Code by audio and Blu-ray documentary set on the making of it. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is David Sharp from San Angelo, Texas. Congratulations, David. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you, sir. And uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. And Jay, we like to ask our guests, if you had five grand to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Oh, man. What would I buy? I've got, I've started getting into home automation. So, um, I think there's a, there's a setup, there's a number of things there that I would probably go quickly burn through five grand in that. Oh, I bet you could. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a, even, you know, the, I don't know if this is happening in your part of the world in Seattle, but around here, the, the carriers like AT&T and the cable carriers, they have like packages for home security that you can buy and install, you know? Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, we, we have that out here as well. Matter of fact, that's, that's what got me into it was theirs was good, but I started toying around a little bit and thinking I could do something better. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> us developers, we, we wouldn't buy any off the shelf thing like that, right? We got to do it ourselves. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I might get a, a bazillion raspberry Pi twos and run windows on them. Just stick them to the walls all over the house. I don't know. It's my new cluster, you know. I kept thinking about putting connects all over the place so I could keep track of where people are and what's actually going on in a room. And it got a little creepy pretty fast. Yeah, that's creepy. Yeah, my wife boycotted that idea pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, a, a few Nest thermometers and a couple of good controllers and things like it gets interesting fast. Yep. Computer vision, have you done anything with that? You know, just uh, sort of trying to figure out what's in a picture and if you can recognize an object being in a picture. I haven't had, I haven't had a chance to play around with that. Some good did stuff. Happen, did you guys see the, the Azure ML thing? That, oh yeah. That, that that's pretty amazing. How, how accurate it really that. is. It makes me want to go take a statistics class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It does open the door to a lot of interesting stuff. You know, it occurred to me that Silverlight ran on the Mac. Is, and that did. pretty much means there was some portion of the CLR and the core that ran on the Mac back in the day. Uh, uh, do those bits still exist? Is that the foundation for a new core for OS X? The, the .NET Core Foundation, I mean, we certainly, we certainly well, let's let's put it this way. We went from a a runtime that ran only on Windows to 
to a, a preview of runtime running on Linux and Mac in less than six months. We definitely borrowed from prior learnings, both in terms of knowledge and code, um, to make that happen that quickly. That was a very politically correct answer. Yeah. That's, so you're <laughs> saying it could happen. <laughs> Technologically, it could happen. <laughs> and, and doesn't it make sense that we move that fast that we'd probably take advantage of everything we had? Yep. Certainly did. Uh, that's really, it's, it's really interesting. You know, there's still folks out there, I think, grumping about the quote unquote death of Silverlight. And I'm like, you know, there's an awful lot of what Silverlight did that exists in the Win8 dev stack. And, and now with the core going everywhere, it's like, tell me what you don't have. Tell me what you're unhappy about right now. Right. Yeah. We don't have a lot to complain about. But having, being able to be a, a, a C sharp developer and getting code onto the Mac is a, for a certain group of people, a really big deal. And, and that was something Silverlight did that nothing else has ever done until almost now. I mean, it's, it's not really ready for production yet, is it, Jay? The, no, the .NET Core is not ready for production yet. It's just the first preview. Um, right. You know, I still got a few, you know, still got quite a bit of work to do there to, to round out, you know, a compelling surface area for the V1, um, get the, you know, get all the, the bugs and perf and all those things kind of worked out. Um, you know, we're not extremely far away, you know, but, um, it's not, it's not quite ready for production yet. Uh, you also look at a lot of what we've done and a lot of the, the changes that have happened in the web stack and the web developer experience really were motivated around both, you know, enabling you to build and deploy applications cross, cross platform. So to win it to windows or Linux, but also to develop them, you know, you know, on different platforms. So we had windows or or Linux or the Mac. And so a lot of the, a lot of that then translates to just better productivity f from a developer's standpoint, things like the dynamic compilation that, that we added to ASP.NET 5 so that you just change a, change a code file and the, the ASP.NET process, the ASP.NET host picks that up, dynamically compiles it on the next request, right? So you're not going through sort of crazy build steps and, and those kinds of things, you know, moving the, the description of your project to a, a much more friendly text-based, you know, JSON file, um, moving to packages versus individual references, those kinds of things. Uh, we're all, you know, motivated both for better developer productivity, but also to enable this, you know, flowing around and, and working between different environments, mixing, you know, environments as part of the team and those kinds of, those kinds of scenarios. You guys have an interesting relationship with Xamarin. And, uh, you know, they, they really fill a niche that, uh, allows, you know, obviously people to use C sharp to develop for iOS, Android and Mac. What, I, I don't know if, uh, you know, what's your take on, on that? I mean, I mean, it's obviously a complementary relationship, but do you guys ever have, uh, what should I say? You know, differences of opinion as, as to where, you know, the core should go and where, where, where it should be taken. Yeah, that's a that's a very strong partnership between us and Xamarin. We work very closely together, um, kind of on you know on .NET and and talk a lot often about you know the direction of both of both projects and both products. You know, I probably talk to Miguel uh, almost as often, maybe as some of my own um, engineering managers. That you know, I I think they 
they have a great set of technology. Um, you know, the, the, the unique aspect for them and the way I like, I typically talk to people about, you know, a strategy for cross plat development is if, you know, they, they've found the opportunity. They've, they've focused in on enabling C sharp and .NET developers to build native applications that are running on iOS and Android, right? Um, so when your application has those requirements, you need, you know, you want the native look and feel of the device. You, you need access to all of the capabilities of the device. Um, but also know that you want to target multiple different devices or different mm. device families. Um, they, they really try to hit that sweet spot of allowing you to share as much code as possible, but still get access to the native capabilities of the device, right? Um, and do it from a familiar experience of C sharp and .NET. And I, I think that's great. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't say that we have too many differences in, in direction of the core kind of runtime in the core platform. Um, a lot of the work that, you know, we have done and, and taken open source, be it things like Roslyn, um, they either pick up very quickly or, or start working into their roadmap of how do they pick up those technologies and replace their implementations with, with the ones we're doing. So Roslyn's definitely one where they're, you know, working to figure out how to, how and when to, to pick up the breadth of Roslyn as part of their tool chain rather than, you know, their own, you know, C sharp compilers. I imagine having Miguel be so, um, close with Microsoft and, and working in Xamarin and all of that stuff brings a lot of, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't say cred, but give, gives the, the Linux crowd, uh, cause to raise eyebrows. Like, oh, well, Miguel, you know, he's a big deal in the Linux world, you know? And so he's sort of like, you see him as an, a sort of an ambassador between those two worlds. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't, I can't express enough how, how, how much, you know, Miguel has really been extremely helpful in both helping us understand, you know, he's one of the key, key areas of learnings we get, you know, since he has been um, investing for so many years in, in cross-platform implementations of .NET. Um, there's a wealth of knowledge uh, that he has been very free and, and open sharing with us. Yeah. As well as just, you know, as part of, of getting into and being a more active member of an open source world, he also has, you know, a lot of experience and insights of things that worked and didn't work there um, that we certainly uh, appreciate his his willingness to kind of share that with us. So. So. Uh, so what's next for you guys? I mean, you, you've got a, you just announced a whole bunch of stuff. Can you give us any hints on the things that you're uh, working on now? I would say that what's next is is delivering on what we've announced and finishing finishing V one of of the the crossplat.net is is the main focus right now. Yeah. Um, we made some big made some big commitments and now we need to to follow through on them, which we will do. What about Visual Basic? Because it seems like it's sort of been left out of some of these conversations. You know, um, I wouldn't uh, Visual Basic is still clearly a, an important language for us. It has a, a big uh, user base. The The thing that we have learned um, and the, the approach that we've started to take is is more really le- focusing in on, on, on aspect, uh, you know, and delivering from that vantage point and then applying it to the other places we need to, we need to go support. So if you think about ASP.NET 5, ASP.NET 5 will initially come out with, you know, 
focused on getting the experience correct and the surface area correct for C Sharp. And then we will add Visual Basic support to it uh, from there. The team, I think, I think finally clarified that a few weeks ago through some blog posts. Um, certainly we can do a better job of, of articulating those plans and those approaches up front uh, for folks. We haven't done as good a job doing that as we could have. Um, but that's really the way we think about it. We do the same thing in the language team. We, we tend to focus, we design in, in parallel, but we typically try to, to iron out all the details of a language capability in one language first, uh, and then apply those learnings to the other. So we're not, we found that's a more efficient way for us to develop the, the product, um, rather than churning through on both languages, uh, at the same time. And it does tend that we will, we will often focus on, on doing those things in C sharp first and then apply those learnings uh, to the visual basic product or the visual basic language. And though I know it would anger some people, I mean, C sharp and VB.net are not that different, not as different as say C sharp and F sharp. Right. They, they really are not as different as um, certainly not, you know, they're very similar languages. Uh, they're not like, you know, functional versus object oriented where you have something, you know, more of the F sharp, you know, C sharp VB kind of distinction there. Sure. I still love my XML literals, man. <laughs> yeah, those are those are still pretty cool. Rock and um, sweet. Yep. I always wondered yeah. why, you know, C Sharp never got that feature. You know, if you go in and read the Rosalind uh, conversations on GitHub, that comes up as a feature request. And I'm pretty sure the response for my from the team was something along the lines of over my dead body. <laughs> It, it, why? Because it's too high level? I don't, you know, I think it's a very personal choice by guys like, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but guys like Mads Torgensen and things, the, the guys who've been involved with C Sharp from the very beginning, they have very strong opinions about uh, specifically XML literals. And, uh, and it, but what's cool is you can read it. It's there. They, they you know, somebody, as soon as Roslyn was in GitHub, Somebody requested XML literals as a feature, and but there's a whole conversation about it there. I bet if we had JSON literals in C Sharp, they'd love that. <laughs> XML issues, apparently. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it, it is one of those places where I think the, the, the two languages did have slightly different um, opinions on on how to think about the evolution of the language. C-sharp mm. has always held firmly to a, a principle of, of lightweight and simplicity in the language. Uh, and so when you talk to folks like Mads or Anders, right, one of the things they will say is, you know, before we introduce something to the language, we want to think hard about what its long-term roadmap would be and what it, what, what it brings to language in terms of complexity and, and concept count and those kinds of things. Because, while it's easy to introduce something to language, it is impossible to take it back out. Right. Uh, and I and suppose it could confuse things, too. If you have a million one ways to do stuff, you know, then, uh, you know, yeah. that little dot tends to be really confusing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, well, it, it's a concept count thing, right? It, it just increases the concept count. The Visual Basic language designers originally had a, had a slightly different view where they were were really, 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 really focused on you know, developer productivities and ways in which the language could improve developer productivity. And we're willing to, to take more risks introducing, um, introducing a capability in the language that may not be a thing 
many years down the line, right? Right. Um, and you can look at that's kind of visual basics lineage, right? Is introducing a lot of things like that that had a lot of value in, for a window of time, but then maybe weren't as relevant later because the technology world moved on from that technology. And and visual basics still, has, you know, carries those capabilities with it, uh, which can add to the concept count sometimes. You know, it's funny as I remember. I guess we're all just old enough. I remember back when VB was brand new, and I was a uh, Windows developer in C++, which means I was very unhappy most of the time, <laughs> uh, you know, because this was a diagnostic process of run your code, hard hang the machine, reboot, try and figure out what happened. <laughs> and VB made life wonderful because you just couldn't crash the machine with VB. And it, it makes me think of, it was so productive. Like, I don't know that we've ever recaptured that level of productivity that we had in those early versions of VB. It makes me think back to what light switch's promise of of massive productivity sort of leads to. I, I I wonder if we can get those bits together to get to that point again, Jay, where where you know rapid, rapid application development, not just sophisticated. Yeah, no, I think that's the interesting thing for me is, you know, when I think think about it, the visual basic, right, back then, it, it wasn't just a language. It was a language, it was a development environment, and it was an ecosystem, right, that all right. magically came together yes. in just the right way to to create that productivity. Yes, um, and while it all got associated with VB, a language, it was always way bigger than just a language. And so right. I, I absolutely agree. I think that's, you know, that's what we, that's, that is an area that we still believe in, that we need to be able to bring all those things together and bring the combination of the language the IDE, the developer experience, the frameworks, the runtimes, and the ecosystem back, you know, into that that nice merge where you have just this, you know, immensely productive experience for building applications. Oh, and now we're going to do it across Windows and Linux and Mac and so forth. Mm, by the way. Yeah, which is an interesting circle back when you think about the early days of Microsoft when it was Atari ST and Amiga and PC and the Mac, you know, there wasn't one OS, there wasn't one way, and we were trying to build tools across all those things too. It's it's uh, it's very much future past to get back to the heterogeneous client. Yep. The thing about the nostalgia for the old days, Richard, is that we forget that up until that point, you know, when VB came on the scene, it took a long time just to get anything working that just worked, you know, a Windows app that worked, you know, something that you could click a button and do something that was useful. And, uh, you know, when, when it was just like, zip, 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 boom, ship, you know, uh, it was amazing. And, and so the, the, the productivity, it wasn't so much that we were more productive. It's that the jump in productivity went from, you know, taking months to get something to just a couple of hours. Well, so, and let me spin this another way then, Carl. That was one of the reasons that Windows ended up winning at the time, too. That is very good point. Absolutely you know, a good point. Windows was not dominant when VB came along and made it super productive. I still had CPM systems in my life. I still had, uh, you know, STs and other types of machines in the world. Like, but that ability to rip out the business apps that people wanted so fast made Windows dominant. 
I, I wonder if there's something like that in the future. I don't know. Well, Windows Forms. I mean, you know, think about it. Um, that's what Windows Forms is. Yep. And uh, if that's the kind of app that you want, you can do that. It's just that I think people are demanding more, you know, both from the look and feel of their apps and then from, you know, the scalability of their apps and the whatever of their apps. It's still very much an old way of thinking. It does not think in terms of phones. It doesn't think in terms of HoloLens and home automation, you know, the stuff that I think people are starting to want from the computing. But if you want a Windows app, there's nothing faster than Windows Forms. Yeah, it's true. And so that's why it's still there. <laughs> yep, very true. All right, man. Jay, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for sharing the good stuff with us. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a